series about God's kingdom, uh, his kingdom coming. Uh, We've looked already at what that kingdom means for us individually, a little bit about our money for different nations and different ethnic groups. The title I've got this morning is Your Kingdom Come in Our Culture. In Our Culture. And I find myself tempted to speak about so many things, not helped by the fact that next Saturday I'm in Derby for the day and doing four, I think, lectures on the same subject, which means my head's full of it. And um, I'm just going to name up front that I'm not going to speak about um, the end of days and the final renewal of all creation, or the eternal fate of those who die without trusting in Christ, or about how we engage with a multi-faith society, or about what shalom means, or Zechariah's vision of human flourishing, or about God's vision for Oxford as a city. I would have loved to have spoken about all of those things, but they shall wait for another day. I'm just naming that up front so that I can then be a little bit accountable to you for not going everywhere as we talk about culture this morning. Some of those things are actually in the preaching plan for the autumn, so hang around. Um, I am not moving forward. There we go. Also to help discipline me from not saying everything about everything, here are a few books I'd like to recommend to you if you want to dig for yourself further into this question of what God has to say about the culture of our society and where we live. A book by Samuel Wells, who is the vicar at St. Martin in the Fields uh, for Good, about the church and the welfare state. A book about culture making by Andy Crouch. And a A rather more, you can tell from the cover, it's a slightly more theological and academic book, can't you? To change the world, even from this, it has a subtitle as well, The Irony, Tragedy and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. But if you want to dig into, rather further, how does it work for us as Christians to to change the world? Or how do we participate with God in that? There's a few books that you might like to read. Um, To put it a really much more simple starting point. Uh, The Dutch Prime Minister of a hundred or so years ago, Abraham Kuyper, uh, said this, there is not one square inch of all created reality where Christ does not say, mine, it belongs to me. There is not one square inch of all created reality where Christ does not say, mine. It belongs to me. So uh, this is Psalm 24, verse 1. Could you read this with me? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. You're going to be saying this a few times over, so let's just get the hang of it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So we're going to look at a few pictures and remind ourselves of this truth. We're going to start somewhere really obvious and straightforward, where we are this morning. This place belongs to God. Christ says, it's mine. Every square inch, there's quite a few square inches here. Every single one belongs to Jesus. So we can say together, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Which version are we going? All, not everything. I've got everything in my notes and I was confused there. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. The John Radcliffe Hospital belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Um, Windsor Castle 
belongs to the Lord on loan to the Queen. <laughs> the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Um, anyone know where that is? That is Loch Lomond with the mountains there in the background. It belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Of great interest to many people at the moment, this belongs to the Lord. It's about to get loaned to someone. We don't yet know who. At the World Cup, it's the Lord's. He made the gold. It's all his. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Uh, This is a bit of the Sahara Desert. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Here we go. The Grand Mosque in Mecca belongs to the Lord. Because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. I don't know if you recognize this place. It does look like Sauron's Tower in the background, but it's actually not Mordor. It is Pyongyang, the capital city of North Korea. You know what? It belongs to the Lord. Because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And uh, just to bring things back to home, the River Charwell and Punting too belong to the Lord. Our lives here in Oxford, wherever we are and work and live, uh, wherever we love people and struggle with people, all of those places and in all of those things, it all belongs to the Lord because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So my title this morning was Your Kingdom Come, God in Our Culture. What does culture mean? Perhaps it makes us think of Uh, sophisticated, clever sorts of things. Makes us think perhaps of the arts or the sciences. And it certainly does speak of those things. Also of education and business and government and the media. Uh, Our home lives have a culture. It's a word that speaks of everything. Everything that we do. Just a small subject this morning. To help us think about it in a biblical way, we'll just go back in time a little bit to where this word culture comes from, from a Latin word, cultura, which meant uh, not to leave nature as it was, but to make something of it. Not just to leave nature as it was, but to make something of it. For many centuries, therefore, culture meant agriculture or horticulture, Not just eating whatever came up out of the ground, but tilling the ground and planting certain things and nurturing those things. Not just leaving nature as it was, but making something of it. And so right at the start of the Bible, we have a garden, the Garden of Eden, and it was a place of the culturing of the world that God had made. I'm going to read these few verses from Genesis chapter 2 which speak of the Garden of Eden as a place of culture where people worked together in God's presence. It says in verse 8 of chapter 2, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of tree grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing for the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a bit more of a description of the garden. 
in the next few verses. And then in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you mustn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. It goes on to describe the creation of Eve to work with and to be with Adam. You can read the whole of that chapter at your leisure. And together, it paints a picture for us of Adam and Eve together cultivating the garden according to God's command. Adam and Eve together cultivating the garden according to God's command. So I've got another little picture for you here of what's going on at this point of the origin of culture. You've got a little person there who seems to be quite happy, relating to God, relating to other people, and relating to the world. And those things all hang together, defining what it means to be human, what it is to be made in God's image, that we relate to him, that we relate to others also made in his image. And we have a role in culturing, nurturing the world that he has made. If you read on in the story, it gets tragic. There is sadness to come because as that line there is broken on the screen, people disobeyed God's command, that singular command not to eat one particular fruit. And in doing so, they turned their backs on God and they broke relationship with him. And having broken that relationship with God, their other relationships were also affected. There was a curse pronounced upon Eve, uh, which included pain in childbirth and difficulty in her key relationship with another person, that is with Adam. And Adam had a curse placed upon him, which made his work in the world difficult. And so the broken relationship with God led to all of these relationships becoming difficult But I've left some dotted lines there, struggling to find a way of somehow representing the truth that whilst God's judgment made a difference to to, to people's relationships with one another and a difference to people's relationships with the world, it didn't destroy those relationships entirely. The relationship with God is broken through rebellion, but what we're left with in our relationships with one another and with the world is a slightly more complicated mixture in which we're not completely bad. God did not destroy in that moment the entirety of the good life that he'd given to people. Fast forwarding to the New Testament in Romans 2, Paul is able to write about people who are outside of Israel, have never heard the word of God that came through Moses or any of the prophets, and Even those people, he says, don't get everything wrong. He says their consciences bear witness, their thoughts now accusing, but even now defending them. That is, the natural state of being human is to do some things wrong and some things right. Every single person, because of that mixture, stands in need of forgiveness because no one's got a complete stack of getting everything right. So everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody needs the cross of Christ applied to their life to be forgiven and set free. 
But when you look at the things that go on in any person's life, there's a mixture. There's a load of good stuff, and there's a load of bad stuff too. That's true for each one of us. And so when we think about culture, that means that there's a mixture in every culture all around us. It's not the case that the whole world out there is bad, and that we in the church are the only ones who've got anything good, but all people have both good and bad in their lives. And every culture, every place has a mixture of good and bad in it. In the face of all of that, God formed a plan to deal with all of this brokenness. In Colossians 1, it says that in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this saving work, this thing that Jesus did, this thing that we've remembered in breaking bread this morning, this work of Christ at the cross, it applies to all of those relationships. It not only makes a way for us to come to the Father and to see our relationship with God restored, but that has a transforming impact on the relationships that we have with other people. And beyond that, it restores something of the culturing of the world, of how we live in the world that God has made. So uh, There are some differing tasks, different words that we use as Christians to describe these different aspects. When we seek to help people come back into relationship with God, a relationship that has been lost to them but is just there and available, we call that evangelism. And I think we have some understanding of of what that's like. It's something we talk about a fair bit, our evangelism or our, our witness being missional might mean that in many people's minds, but there's more to being missional. Here's another thing. We also are engaged in social action. That is, doing things that pay attention to the quality of relationships that we have with each other. And that includes care for those who are in poverty and who are needy. Uh, But it includes this kind of social action I would suggest to you this morning encompasses quite a wide range of things that we instinctively, as Christians, get on with in order to pay attention to people's needs. When we offer pastoral care within the church, when we uh, offer marriage preparation or marriage enrichment courses, we're paying attention to the quality of relationships that people have. If we're engaged in fighting modern slavery as an injustice, that is offensive to God, we're fighting for the uh, restoration of relationships as they should be. One of the most delightful things uh, that I find in the life of Tyndale Community School, the school that we began nearly five years ago now in Cowley, is because it's a very ethnically diverse school community, as many schools in the city are, um, there is the potential for tension between those different ethnic groups. And actually, I have to say, when I am there sometimes and at the school gate, it's quite common to see lots of uh, white people talking to each other and people who seem to be of Pakistani origin talking to each other and uh, black people talking to each other at the school gate. And some linking between the two, but there's a, there's a reality there 
of cultural difference that, that it, you see it, you see it. Um, it's much, much more mixed up amongst the kids. And that's wonderful. And to try and share with the whole of the family what the children enjoy, from time to time the school organizes an international lunch where uh, everybody is invited to come and bring the food from their own culture and have a bring and share lunch and share it with everyone else in the school community. And it's a really powerful thing for many people because um, they've eaten curry, but never by somebody who knows how to make it properly and who they can place a name to, and, but, and whose child happens to be in the same class as their child. And um, that's the kind of stuff that we engage with in order to see relationships sorted. We can call it social action. Now, the third arm of this, I struggle to know quite what words to put here. I've ended up going for the words that will probably help you most if you Google it. I think this is the phrase that is most widely used at the moment, and the phrase is cultural renewal. Cultural renewal. The things that we do to pay attention to people's relationship with the world where God has placed us, the renewing of the culturing that God has given us to do. Um, That might sometimes be planting forests or green technologies, uh, but there are many different ways in which we may act to make the world a better place. And all of that might be described as cultural renewal. Um, If we design and build buildings that make people's lives better, perhaps telling better stories that help people uh, properly understand their place in the world, um, it's hard not to think back to that period of history of Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and their determination to make goodness fashionable. Wonderful, wonderful turn of phrase. Or from um, the Cadbury family who determined to sell hot chocolate as an alternative to drinking gin so that people's lives would be better for it and still are today. Um, The invention of toilets, that was a winner, wasn't it? I'm really, really glad for that piece of cultural development and renewal that went on at some point. If you... Uh, Google this. You might find other turns of phrase that people might use. Um, Cultural renewal, cultural mandate is a phrase that is sometimes used by people writing on this subject. One way or another, changing the world. Um, In wider society, the same kind of idea might get called progress. We have certain political parties that perceive themselves to be progressive and thereafter doing this kind of thing as well. Uh, Go back a hundred years, and the word that was attached to this was civilizing. Civilizing, making civil society better. The point is that these three things are all part of Christ's work, described in Colossians 1, of reconciling to himself all things. God is interested in all of these kinds of relationships. Uh, They're all, let me say, valuable in themselves. It is not the case that we do social action simply in the hope that it will make our evangelism more effective. Nor that we might do things to make the world a better place in the hope that it might lead people to Christ. That's not where it derives its value from. 
all of these things are valuable in themselves. To put it in a phrase that you might remember, we don't serve people in order to win converts. We serve people because we're converted. We don't serve people in order to win converts. We serve people because we're converted. And if we are involved in creating new culture, that's because God has done a a work of new creation in us. It flows out of what God's doing in us rather than simply being a means to an end. And you may or may not be aware, but sometimes these different kinds of Christian activities evangelism and social action and cultural engagement, cultural renewal, sometimes Christians have found these things to be in tension with each other. And sometimes they've even argued over which is most important and where resources should be placed. But in fact, those three things ought all to work together in synergy, feeding one another, helping one another, so that engagement in one of those things helps the others also to happen. A few practical examples. If you have an elderly neighbor who needs to be looked out for and cared for, it's pretty much a given that that will lead to opportunities to pray and witness to Christ. Social action does indeed lead to uh, to opportunities to evangelize. Those things work together. In fact, um, Christians Against Poverty, a wonderful, wonderful charity, operating in many places, have been able to collect data on what happens when they set about uh, helping people out of their debt. And they've plotted charts of uh, the different centers that they have around the country and the outcomes from the work of those centers. And it's not a great surprise to know that those centers that have seen most people set free from debt are the same ones that have seen most people become Christians. I always like it when there's hard data to evidence uh, what we find to be true in the scriptures. It happens in other ways too. I remember learning a lesson, ooh, must be 10 years ago now, when there was a youth initiative called, I think it was called The Noise, where young people right across the country from churches were encouraged to go to different uh, communities that were labeled as deprived communities, go there and do stuff like clearing up people's gardens or painting people's front rooms or just practical things to help out. And before that happened, the expectation was that the people who were being served would say, wow, this is amazing, you're so kind, why are you so kind? And that joining up of social action and witness would happen right there. What rather happened was that most people who were served in that way said, thanks very much, Uh, goodbye. But where Christian teenagers had mentioned this activity at school, they'd found friends who were not Christians saying, that's really cool. Uh, could, could I join in as well? And they'd found friends who were not Christians joining in with the picking up of syringes and the painting of walls. And as they were doing it together, they were their non-Christian friends going, so, 
So you've got all these other friends in church and you get on and that's working. I never saw that before. Tell me a bit, what is it you believe? And God worked in a different way. Um, This works in so many ways. Green technologies don't only aid ecosystems, but human health. Cultural renewal is deeply tied to a concern for other people's well-being, which you might think of happening through social action. In our daily work, um, who here ever gets to be involved in writing policy for your workplace? Some of you do. Um, I thought it might be rather more than that. Okay. Um, Who uh, gets to make choices about how places are laid out and where people will work? A few different people. Andrew's putting his hand up for everything. Um, uh, In these kinds of daily activities, we're shaping the world. We have, it's clearly working out in different ways for different people, but how we relate to people uh, shapes all of these things. Um, The person most often thought about when we think about this making the world a better place is probably William Wilberforce. Uh, It helped that about 10 years ago, a film was produced that told us all about his story. He was involved in the abolition of the slave trade. Uh, But actually, that was just one part of his life. Uh, He also wrote a book seeking to persuade the social elite of his day to trust in Christ for themselves, which became an overnight bestseller. And having seen a law passed to abolish the slave trade, just a few years later, he was again arguing in Parliament for something else, which was the right of British people to go as missionaries to India so that they could share the knowledge of Christ and all the change that that made with the peoples of India. And when that vote was won, Wilberforce said, that is an even greater achievement than the abolition of the slave trade. Because he had in view all of these things. And he knew that in opening the doors for Christian people to go and live out their Christian lives in India, that all of these kinds of things would happen. That slavery would be Uh, whatever that looked like in India, would be attended to. But not only that, all of the fullness of what God wants to do in reconciling all things to himself would, would be enabled after the East India Company had opposed it for so long. Your kingdom come in our culture means that we, as Christians, have a heart for all of these different things. So how might that land a little bit more practically? I've got three suggestions for you to take away. and Because this is all big picture stuff, isn't it? Like, let's change the world and everything in it. Big picture. And it can be hard for us to see what that means for us. So dropping from that kind of grand level to our lives, what might we do? Well, the first thing, as you can see on the screens here, is cultivating biblical values. As I've already said... No human ever has done everything right or everything wrong, apart from Jesus did everything right. No one else has done that. Everyone else, there's a mixture. Every single culture, there's a mixture of good and bad. In the world around us, there are some things that we come across that are evil. 
others that are really, really good, and others about which you might reasonably be indifferent. The, uh, the scriptures give us no guidance as to whether they're good or bad. And we need to know what God's view is because we have lots of judgment calls to make in our lives as to whether something that we come across is something that we should confront as evil or simply critique and try to tweak and change, whether something we come across is something that we would do well to copy or even just something that we can take hold of and consume. We need to know God's mind about the things that are around us, so that where we come across things that are of neutral moral value in God's eyes, we can let them be. Where we come across things, good things being done by other people, good that is in God's sight, then we can celebrate them with unreserved joy. And just to be clear here, um, that will sometimes mean us as Christians celebrating what Muslims are doing or Sikhs are doing or atheists are doing, having identified that sometimes everybody sometimes does good things. And we should not be half-hearted or mealy-mouthed in celebrating the good that is done by people that have a different spiritual standing to us. Because to do so would be to cut against God's valuing of things. So just around the the hill from where we live, here in the west of the city, there's a van parked there, which frequently reminds me of there's a Sikh action team who do a soup kitchen on a regular basis. You might have been fed by them on Broad Street at some point. I don't know. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Someone just needs to say great to that and celebrate the good that's being done Uh, and where we find things being done contrary to God's will, we need to be ready to act appropriately and respond appropriately there as well. In all kinds of different ways, if we find that refugees in our city are not being well provided for, then some practical service might be the best response. If we find people in our workplace using authority in manipulative and controlling ways, the right thing to do might be to call it out. The right thing to do might be to lodge a grievance. The right thing to do might be just to set a better example and so to set the kind of culture in which you work. If you come across someone who needs healing, if you have medical skills, you may get a chance to employ them, but every one of us can respond to that uh, challenge with prayer. And sometimes we do just need to proclaim God's righteous judgment on things. There are, so the exploitation of labor, and people keep getting arrested in this city for uh, modern slavery offenses. I don't know if you're aware, every few months it seems to me recently, someone's being arrested for a modern slavery offense. There are people being kept in slavery in our city. Some things we just need to proclaim God's righteous judgment on and make sure they don't get missed. There's a lot of judgment calls to be made there. What do we stand up against? What do we stand for? What do we celebrate? What do we confront? What do we critique? What do we consume? What do we copy? In all of that, it will do us good to cultivate biblical values so that our judgment is in line with the Lord's. Remembering that the first culture, first culture named in the scriptures, went wrong because people 
disobeyed God's command. Culture goes wrong when people don't do it God's way, and it goes well when they do. So let's cultivate biblical values. Secondly, let's cultivate a sense of calling. Only God has the whole picture of what needs to be done in all of these relationships. And it doesn't fall to any of us to have to figure it all out. And together, not just as one congregation here, but with all of God's people, the whole church is Christ's body. And each of us in that body have different roles to play, which means that we can care about everything that Christ cares about, but we only have to carry what he gives us individually to bear. We can care about it all, but we don't have to bear it all. So it's not our job to change the world, but our job is instead to engage with what God asks of each one of us. To find the place where our gifts and the deep gladness that we can feel in life meet with the world's deep hunger. God has shaped us, each one of us, with certain gifts. Sometimes we might wish that we had other gifts than we do. Other opportunities than we do. But God has assigned work for each one of us. And if he gave us gifts that enabled us to do someone else's job really well, we might well get distracted from the one he's actually called us to do. And so he distributes gifts and abilities and opportunities. He places different passions in different ones of us in order to help each one of us stick on the track that he's got for us. So that amidst this holistic task of evangelism and social action and cultural renewal, there's a place for each one of us. There's a, there's a biblical word for this, and it's the word calling. What is God calling us to do? Now, depending on your age, this question of calling will feel very different. Um, if, you're, if, you're eight, if you're 20 or under or a little bit over, you're probably just beginning to wonder what your calling might be. If you're in your uh, later 20s or your 30s, you've probably got a bit of an idea, but are also a little bit anxious about whether you've properly got hold of it. Uh, And if you're getting on beyond that, you might think, well, I've never caught up with it, and I've missed it. Or else you really praise God if you really do know what it is, and you're you're walking in it. Um, So this particular thing about cultivating calling will feel very different to different ones of us. But it's a simple encouragement just to open our hearts again, open our ears again, and pay attention to where the grace of God operates in our lives. uh, And to, to take steps towards focusing on what God's called us to do. And not to fuss about the fact that we haven't got someone else's job. Be at peace. We can care about everything, but we only have to bear what God has for us to do. Cultivate calling. And lastly, we want to cultivate prayer. 
The title for our whole series is Your Kingdom Come. That's part of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, Your Kingdom Come. Sometimes we're tempted to think that we can organize God's kingdom into being. But as Andy Crouch said in the book that I referenced at the beginning, changing the world sounds grand until you consider how poorly we do even at changing our own little lives. And so some humility is in order. The kingdom advances forcefully, Jesus said, and we do lay hold of it, but we lay hold of it more than any other way through prayer. More than any other way, we lay hold of God's kingdom through prayer. So, if you want to see homelessness eradicated, you'd better pray. If you want to see a carbon-neutral Oxford, you'd better pray. Actually, if you want to see global warming averted, you'd better pray. Let's not disconnect these tasks from the one who advances his kingdom. And if you want to see people born again, then you better pray. Because God is the one who causes his kingdom to come. He does it as we pray and invite him to do so. So God, would your kingdom come? And would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Amen. I feel that the word that Steve has brought us this morning is a word that is, is kind of pivotal. It's foundational. It it offers us an opportunity to rethink, to have our minds renewed in Christ, that we will think and live differently from this day forward as we process what God has said to us this morning. I believe it's not just Steve Jones being clever and speaking this morning. I believe it is really is a word from God this morning that helps us understand how we live. And I believe it will be significant for us as we keep moving forward as a people who are holistically missional. So can I encourage us all to keep processing it, to, get, to, to listen to it again, to ask what God's saying to us, to talk with people, to process the thing about calling, that we don't get hung up about it, but we find peace in who we are and get on with being who we are, recognizing that God will put all those bits together. I'm reminded of a post, post thing I remember years ago that had a picture of the body of Christ. It was made of lots of little people and it made up one big person. And it's that thing of us all together making up something whole and effective. And I believe that that's part of what God wants to do in us and to see that holistic thing together. Process it individually, process it together in your missional communities or wherever you might week midweek. And folk who aren't here this morning, can you encourage them to hear the tape too so that they too can actually be part of this and keep processing forward? Uh, I just share that with you. I, I feel it quite quite deeply this morning where I don't normally feel which is why I want to discharge that that sense of please let's hear this with a sort of a joy and a liberation and a freedom but a sense of seriousness of what God's in calling us to get hold of this morning that really does bring about transformation in our lives enables us to be even more effective together as a people of God that God wants us to be okay have a great week let's see how God begins that process in us as we take it forward God bless you see you next Sunday